All right. Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the uh, epistle of 1 Peter chapter 2? As we entered into uh, chapter 2 of Peter's first epistle, uh, he's been admonishing us as Christians to honor God by respecting and obeying those that the Lord has placed in authority over our lives. As we have said, God is the, is the supreme authority over the lives of all he has created, but he has delegated some of that authority to um, those he has put in charge uh, so that human society can live in peace and function without anarchy, confusion, and chaos. Paul tells us that, you know, God is not the author of confusion. The Greek word there means disorder, but he is uh, the God of peace, 1 Corinthians 14.33. And therefore, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another in the fear of God. God is the God of order. As we have been talking the last couple of weeks, he has ordained in human society. You can't have no order in society if you want there to be order. There are those that advocate uh, a society where nobody's in charge. It's anarchy. Uh, nothing ever functions in anarchy. What happens is you have jungle law, survival of the fittest. You have uh, roaming gangs of marauders that rape and pillage and, and steal and all because there's no one there to stop them. That's why God has given us primarily human government because human government is there to keep in check the powers of evil. Read 1 Timothy chapter 1, how that God gave laws for the ungodly, not for the righteous. Righteous people, Christians don't need laws because we have the law of God written in our hearts. We don't want to steal and and kill and do all these things. But uh, unbelievers, if left to their fallen nature inclinations, uh, would run wild. And so God, because he is a God of order, has ordained human government. And that's just one of the institutions that God has placed uh, over his creation. I say his creation, I mean us as his people. We've talked about the three main institutions that God has created that uh, all three function under the principle of authority and submission. All three are essential for the functioning of any human society. And we talked about government. We talked about the church. We talked about family, which is, of course, primarily marriage. But um, God has placed people in authority over us. And um, as God's people, as we submit to that authority, not only honors God, but it makes us good citizens. And that's Peter's whole point. He's admonishing us to be good citizens. Because in this section, he's dealing with the fact that, look, we want to reach people for Christ. We talked about this last week. Uh, the only thing that matters, and we're going to jump on it again this week. It's very important. The only thing that matters is that people get saved. And, of course, those that are saved grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. But we are here on this little speck of dust spinning in the cosmos for one purpose as Christians to be used by God to recover, to rescue those that Satan has taken captive. We have been saved, and now God sends us out the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach. And, uh, and of course, we preach with our lives. Augustine said, uh, everywhere you go, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. But we preach it primarily through our lives. And so Peter wants us to be good citizens because he wants us to be a good witness that those that don't know God, those that don't probably will never set foot in a church, per se, will look at our lives 
and see that we're different. Why would they see we're different? Because as we said last week, the very definition of an unbeliever is a child of Satan. Read 1 John 3. He talks about the children of God, the children of the devil. Everyone in this room before we got saved was a child of the devil. We were a product of the fall. And as such, the God of this world had control of our lives, whether we knew it or not. And was controlling us to the things we were watching and listening to and reading many times. Just everything in this world was designed by him to kind of um, get us to think a certain way. Because as he could control our thoughts, he could control our lives. As a lot of folks who will never set foot in a church, that's why Peter says you need to live the life. You're a new creation in Christ. Now go out there and live it. Let your light shine because there are folks out there that will never come to church. So you as the church have to go to them. And as you do and as you're a good citizen and you're humble and, you're, and you respect authority, that's totally contrary to the children of the devil who are by definition rebels because he's a rebel, and they see you respecting authority and humble and so on, I'm not saying everyone who sees that is going to get saved, but they're definitely going to be drawn to you because you're different. And that's the whole, the whole idea. So, again, the first group that Peter wants us to be submissive to is uh, those in civil government, elected officials, police, etc. We studied that in verses 13 to 17. The second group that Peter admonishes to obey those in authority, he's, he's talking to another group now, which he's admonishing to obey the, those in authority over them. We studied this last week. He's talking to slaves. Now, of course, since there is no slavery in America anymore, uh, obviously, you know, we could apply this to employees respecting, honoring, working hard for their employers. And we did look at that last week uh, quite a bit. But let me just get a running start because... What Peter had to say to the slaves then springboards into what I want to talk about tonight, which applies to everybody. But he said in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, servants, and he's really talking about slaves there, household slave servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him, the Father, who judges righteously. Now, as I said last week to close out our study, because we kind of ran out of time, but um, this for me is one of the absolute most difficult things to obey of all God has commanded. This is just, I'm talking for myself. Yet I understand that our light will never shine brighter for the people of this world to see that we're different that we are children of God, than when we act like Jesus in this regard. Remember as we read the Gospels, on the morning of his crucifixion, Jesus allowed himself to be falsely accused by the Jewish leadership uh, in front of Caiaphas and uh, Annas. Uh, it was a railroad kangaroo court. He had already been decreed guilty by them. They rushed him off to Pilate. Uh, because they didn't have the authority to crucify anybody or to kill anyone. Capital punishment was removed from the Jewish people by the Romans when they came into power. So they had to go to Pilate. 
And they were there when he, his court opened at 6 a.m., first ones in line. But the whole thing about it, you know, he allowed himself to be falsely accused by the Jewish leadership that morning, uh, then beaten, mocked, and scourged by the Roman soldiers, and finally crucified. Listen, all without offering any defense or opening his mouth to denounce those who were lying about him and who were mistreating him. And when I say mistreating him, I'm, I'm using it. A very light word for a very brutal beating. Isaiah tells us more graphically what he went through than even the Gospels record. That he was beaten so badly, they put a bag over his head and punched him, the soldiers, with closed fists. And if you got a bag over your head, your reflexes can't take over where you kind of move away from the blow and it softens it. Uh, he didn't know where those blows were coming from, they were, so they were hitting him full force. Isaiah says they ripped his beard out of his face. He was so badly disfigured, Isaiah said he was not even recognizable as a man. This is the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence with one word. He could have vaporized these people instantly. He endured that, that tremendous beating at the hands of those he created, those he came to die for. This was the fulfillment of the prophecy Isaiah records in chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And with this fact in mind, Peter then turns to us and says, verse 21, for to this what? You were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And again, guys, I know I speak for others than just myself. This is one of the most difficult things for all of us to obey, keeping quiet when we are falsely accused of some wrongdoing, but we're innocent. And the reason it's so hard for us is because we've grown up in a country uh, that prides itself on upholding and protecting the rights of its citizens. We Americans are very protective of our civil rights. So much so that whenever we're pushed around or our rights are violated in any way, we rise up and say, I know my rights. You can't treat me like that. I'll sue. I'll protest. And, you know, the whole thing, right? This is what we do because this is how we're wired. And then an incredible thing happens. We get saved. We get saved. And now God commands us to follow Jesus' example, which goes against everything we're accustomed to, all the rights that we've grown up with and gotten used to as Americans. This is one of the things I have seen over the years. This is how we're supposed to live, following Jesus' example. But what I've seen over the years is that most Christians, they don't do that when they're wrong. What don't they do? Well, they don't let it go. They don't commit it to God and leave it at that. They tend to want to retaliate, to get even. Uh, and that's because we're often thinking more like Americans than we are like Christians. Primarily because one is rooted in pride, which appeals to our flesh and makes us feel good and empowered when we stand up for our rights. We're Americans. That's just ingrained in us. While the other is rooted in humility and demands that we die to self. And guess what? That doesn't feel good or empowering at all. But that's what Jesus wants us to do, because that's what he did. 
And that's why in America today, the way most people deal with those who have wronged them is to take them to court and sue them. We live in a very litigious society. I checked this out today as I was doing this study to make sure I had my numbers straight and actually was a lot more than it was when I first taught this years ago. But in America, there are over 40 million lawsuits filed every year. Used to be 25 back in 08. A lot of lawsuits doubled since then. Um, I, I've talked about some of these examples, you know, but let me give them to you again. You'll remember some of these, okay? Um, I just wrote down some of the ones I thought were the most crazy, uh, what, what people sue. I remember one guy sued his favorite fast food chain. He ate a lot of fast food. He liked this one place. I forgot what it was. Um, and the food made him fat. So he sued the company because the food made him fat. Now, there was a time when people would laugh at that, that anybody could be that stupid. But I think he won his case. And it goes along with the gal who drove up through the drive-through of her McDonald's, okay, neighborhood McDonald's to get a cup of coffee, and then winds up spilling it in their lap and burning herself. And so she sued McDonald's because they didn't put on the coffee cup hot caution, beverage hot. You, you go, to, go to McDonald's, you see it to get the coffee cup, it's always on there, isn't it? Or I've seen it in other places too. Coffee's supposed to be hot. I mean, it, it's so ridiculous. It w but she won also. Years ago, I heard a story. These are all true stories about a landscaper. He owned a landscaping company. And he was wanting to trim some bushes, but his electric hedge uh, trimmer uh, broke. And so, you know, he didn't want to waste the time to get it fixed or even buy a new one. So what he did was he fired up one of his lawnmowers and picked it up and started using it to trim the hedges. It slipped out of his hand and fell on his leg, cut his leg up pretty good, so he so sues the manufacturer of the lawnmower because they didn't put a sign on the lawnmower that said, caution, do not use his head trimmers. <laughs> and then I've heard, and I, I haven't confirmed that this is true, but I, I have to believe it is, I've heard it a couple times, about a person who actually broke into somebody's house at night, but slipped and fell on one of the kids' toys that was left laying around and sues the family. And wins? As I said, there are more than 40 million lawsuits filed each year in the United States. And you know what? Over the last 20 years, many are now being directed at the church or at churches because attorneys have figured out there's a lot of money to be made by suing churches. Now, there was a time when churches were off limits. I mean, any lawyer that would go after a church, wow, he would just be a social pariah. They, nobody would want to even talk to him. But that has changed because people's attitudes towards Christianity and the church is changing. Right? So there's a lot of lawsuits now that are being filed against churches right? that uh, is bringing a lot of money into these attorneys. Uh, unfortunately, more and more of these lawsuits happen today within the church as Christians are suing other Christians today. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6 because this was going on in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Paul says, when one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court 
to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers. Verse 4, if you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. It's already, you've already lost, even if you win the case. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Ooh, for Americans, it's fighting words. Okay, we don't like that. You know, in the Old Testament, God commanded his people, Israel, to settle their civil problems amongst themselves by working it out, you know, personally with another person or by going to the elders of the community. The idea was they would be the arbiters, they would, they would sit and they would make the judgment and you abide by it because they were the older ones, okay, the community elders, and you just would respect their wisdom and whatever they decided, you'd go along with. That was the way it was handled for thousands of years. Uh, at least among the people of God. Even in New Testament times, the Jews rarely took their legal matters to a Roman court. In fact, Rome gave them the, uh, allowed them, I should say, to settle civil matters in their own Jewish court, was called the Sanhedrin. All except, as I said earlier, for the crucifixion of Jesus, they couldn't pass a death sentence upon Jesus, the religious leaders of Israel, even though they wanted to. Rome had removed the right of capital punishment from them as a nation. So they had to go to a Roman official. That's why they went to Pilate, because only he could. In fact, at one point he said, you know, this is about your law. Go settle this among yourselves. We can't. Roman law won't let us, they said. We need you. So they kept badgering him until he went ahead and gave the order to have Jesus crucified. But I want to make one thing clear. And I, I, I realize we've kind of springboarded off what Peter said, but the whole idea is acting like Jesus in the face of unjust persecution and so on because the real issue we're talking about is not our rights it's how are we going to be used by god to see others saved again if you're looking at life from earth's perspective you're going to want to fight for your rights you're going to want to lay up for yourself treasures on the earth but if you have a spiritual vantage point as paul said uh seated with christ in heavenly places and you see this life as just a stepping stone to eternity, and it's all about getting seeing people saved. Uh, that's the main thing. And But let me, in saying that, let me just say this. I, I want to make this clear. Paul isn't forbidding Christians from using secular courts at all. He's not saying that. Certainly there are times when Christians are going to need to take uh, unbelievers or maybe a secular company uh, to court that has wronged them. The issue that uh, Paul is raising here in his letter to the Corinthians is that, for the most part, Christians ought to handle civil matters between themselves in the church. Now, this works much better when uh, there's only one church in town as there were, was in Paul's day. All right? I mean, when you have churches everywhere, um, a lot harder when you have one local church, like they had one synagogue, the Jewish people did in each town. And, of course, if there was a matter where a person needed to be, needed to be um, reprimanded or, uh, or, or punished in some way because they weren't conforming to the laws of God or whatever, if there was one synagogue or one church in town, if you were put out of the synagogue or, or excommunicated from the church, that was a big deal. It's a big deal. It was a real 
pushed for you to get right. It's the idea. That's and as Paul said in his, uh, I think, a second letter to the Corinthians around chapter five, uh, where this guy was having an affair with his stepmother, and Paul said, "Look, uh, because he's not repenting, put him out of the church." And they did, and then he repented right away. And so Paul fired him back another letter and says, "Bring him back in now." Okay, it's all we wanted was for him to repent and get right with God. Don't leave him now ostracized. Let's the devil really work on it. Bring him right back into the church. It's all is forgiven and, and, and now support him. And that was the idea. And, uh, and certainly that was the best way. If it was just one church and all the Christians went to this one church, it was a lot more powerful when you had to discipline. But um, here we have Corinth, and all the folks Paul's writing to belong to the church of Corinth. Okay? And they're all Christians, supposedly. And yet none of them really wants to die to self. And, you know, they're, they're all fighting for their rights. Well, there were very carnal church. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I wish I could speak to you as to spiritual people, but I can't. You're, you're carnal. You're babes in Christ. You're fighting and bickering. And it's always about you. They were a very carnal church. Carnal people, carnal Christians don't care about the bigger picture, which is being an example. All right? Forget about this fighting and bickering. It doesn't matter if I'm defrauded or if I'm mistreated or somebody takes advantage of me. The bigger issue is, am I going to be a witness for Jesus because we want people outside the church to get saved? That's a mature, spirit-filled Christian thinking. That's how a spirit-filled Christian thinks. A carnal Christian, they're not interested uh, in any of that. They only, and in the, Corinth, the case of the Corinthians, they were only interested in using the secular courts to get what they felt they were entitled to. Again, it was all about getting their rights. Now, I know at one point there are Christians who would say, well, you know, but I do have rights. <laughs> are you telling me that I just, I, I don't have any right to anything like that? Let me say this. Of course you have rights as Americans. But I want you to think about this for a minute. When we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, he became our new master. And sure, we're still citizens of America. But because Jesus is our Lord, our first allegiance priority is to him and to his kingdom. And as such, we have to remember that, again, it's all about following his example. It's all about letting our light shine in the darkness. It's not about our rights. It's not about getting what we deserve. It's all about dying to self so that others might come to Christ by our... They see, wow, you were really taken advantage of, and you're just, you're just forgiving the person. You're just not even fighting for your rights. Why? Because I'm a Christian. And the Lord has said to me, look, I'll take care of it. You know, I mean, just allow, as Paul said, why don't you rather allow yourself to be defrauded? The fact that you go to court, already you're a loser. The whole thing, already you've, you've lost, all right? In a very real sense, when I became a Christian, I relinquished my rights to my Savior, who is now my master. One pastor put it this way, he said, Paul is saying here, the minute you go to secular courts, nobody wins. The whole church loses. It loses its witness, and you lose the opportunity to learn humility by dying to self instead of demanding your rights. Even if you win, you've lost because you've placed your personal gain above your witness to the world. Why don't you just accept uh, that you've been cheated and leave it at that for the sake of God's glory? He will honor that and take care of you, end quote. That's pretty good advice. See, for Paul, the greater issue wasn't 
who was right and who was wrong in a civil matter so that proper justice could be administered. Paul was not an attorney. He was an apostle, a leader in the church. And as such, he was far more concerned about uh, their witness to the world that it, it be maintained and the love of Christ be demonstrated through people who didn't you know, go after others who had wronged them or defrauded them, take them to court, sue them right away. It was all about, in Paul's mind, demonstrating the love and character of Jesus more than anything else. Because, again, the bottom line is we want to see people saved. But today, so many Christians are so consumed with their rights, nothing else seems to matter. And, you know, it's a shame to see uh, how many Christians... And I've seen this, you know, where uh, Christian performers will sue uh, churches because they use some of their songs and didn't have the right... They didn't pay for the royalties or whatever. I mean, that was a problem years ago. I think most churches now have gotten, we have, where we, we pay companies to sing songs. Okay, The artists, that's how they make a living, through royalties, okay? I understand that. But, you know, gee, the bottom line is God gave you those songs for his glory. You know, do you, I mean, do you have to drag churches? I mean, and the bigger the church, the more money they can make. So let's, you know, the attorneys are just lining up to take advantage of that, right? Uh, and at the end of the day, it's like, you know, all right, uh, the church should compensate you then. But you're dragging a church, a Christian artist, dragging a church, Christian church into court? What does that look like in the eyes of the world? How does that make the world, you know, it's like, I'm not going to church. Look at these Christians are always fighting with each other. Again, guys, in the eyes of God, my witness and his glory are far more important than any personal compensation I can get from suing another Christian. Well, so what do we do? Well, he does, God does lay out a, uh, a, a procedure. If we are cheated by another Christian or whatever, uh, it comes out of Matthew 18. You don't have to turn there. I'm sure most of you already know it, but let me just give it to you quickly. If somebody wrongs you, if they cheat you, we'll say, uh, another Christian, the Bible says first thing you do is go to them directly. Try to work it out, brother to brother, sister to sister. If that doesn't work, then you can take two or three other Christians with you and make sure that they are mature and uh, neutral. Don't just grab a bunch of friends that are on your side because you're going to just gather an army to go blast this person. All right. The goal is to reconcile. The goal is to work it out, not to prove you're right and so on. So, you know, if going to them one-on-one -on -one doesn't work, then take two or three other believers who are solid, mature, neutral, and go to that person, try to reason with them. If that doesn't work, if you guys go to the same church, primarily I'm thinking, uh, then the Bible says take it to the leadership. And if that doesn't work after all of that, this person still refuses to do uh, the right thing, guess what? Then you are to just accept the wrongdoing, suffer the loss, forgive him, and leave it in the hands of God. Let God deal with it then. My responsibility is done. I have tried, as Paul said, as much as is possible and depends on you, try to live peaceably with all people. Great, I've tried. Okay, the person wronged me. I've tried to work through it. They won't, uh, they won't work it out with me. At one point I say, well, Lord, now my, my options are to take them to court and sue them or just to turn it over to you and let you handle it now and I'll just forgive them and walk away. And, of course, the latter is the more spirit-filled thing to do, obviously. One pastor said, and I quote, uh, an attorney friend of mine says that over the years he has counseled dozens of Christians to drop, to drop lawsuits against each other. In some 90% of the cases, he has been successful. 
And he reports that without exception, those believers have been blessed, those who didn't decide to sue. Also, without exception, those who insisted on resolving their disputes in court became bitter and resentful whether they won or lost their cases. If they went to court, they always lost spiritually, end quote. I think uh, most of you have heard this. I know I've shared it before, but a few years ago, I was cheated out of an inheritance by some family members who were supposedly Christian, and I really believe they, they are. Um, and um, it was a you know good sum of money, about ten grand. But uh, well, I'm not going to get into the whole story. But but they they cheated uh, me and my brothers and sister out of our our uh, inheritance. And uh, you know at the time I was really upset about it. Okay, I can tell you I was pretty upset, and uh, went to see a lawyer to see what my rights were on this issue. But somewhere along the way, God just began to speak to my heart about letting go of it. You know, letting go of it. Family's important. Even if family messes with you, even if family does wrong by you, they're still family. And God kind of put it on my heart, look, uh, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about the money. I've always taken care of you and your family. I'll take care of you guys now. Just let it go. Forgive them. And that's what we did. We prayed about it and as I look back now, I'm, I'm very glad that I didn't go through with the lawsuit. Um, I realized that my witness was far more important than any money I could have gotten from them. And so uh, I forgave them, and, uh, and uh, we worked everything out. And uh, no, I didn't get any money, but you know, we worked. Uh, just let it go and walked away. This is how God wants us to handle this kind of thing. Um, I remember hearing a true story um, Another pastor was talking about a couple of guys in his church, and one owned a um, like a cabinet shop. And so one of the guys in the church hired him to build a bunch of new cabinets and bookshelves in his house and all. Well, the guy, they're both Christians, the guy underbid the job. He, he didn't really do a good job of figuring out what it was going to cost him. So he really underbid the job and um, was going to lose a lot of money to keep his word but as a christian he you know the bible says blessed is he who swears to his own hurt and what that means is blessed is the person who gives their word later finds out to keep their word is going to be very detrimental but does it anyways because you know what i've given my word jesus said let your yes be yes your no be no right so he goes to the owner and says look uh, the the um, guy that owns the house says look uh, i really underbid this i i didn't figure properly uh i'm going to really lose a lot of money finishing the job but i'm, I'm going to do it because I, I made you a promise now the other guy could have said fine <laughs> yeah you you made me a promise make good on it but being a christian he said look why don't we split the difference why don't we split the difference okay that way none of us is out too much now see that is two mature believers working through an issue that blesses me. If we saw that all over the body of Christ all the time, what a witness we would have in the eyes of the world. That we work together, you know? If we make a mistake, we try to fix it, you know what I'm saying? Now, let me stop and just say this. Because last time I taught this years ago, a gentleman came up afterward and said to me, you talk about two Christians working together. I know a couple that got divorced. And now she was using the children against him, wouldn't let 
him see his own children because she was bitter. And he had to take her to court to get his rights to see his kids. So is that, what is that? Is that wrong? No, that, I, I don't believe that's wrong. I don't believe that's wrong. And again, sometimes, and Paul isn't saying you're forbidden from ever taking a Christian to court. He said, much as possible, work through it, you and that person. But with something like that, obviously, you know, if a person's going to try to keep you from seeing your own children, then if you can't reason with them, then you're going to have to take them to court to get your rights in that regard. Because it's not just about now you. It's about your children, okay? Uh, someone even said, well, you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, forgiving and working things out. I know of a church where someone on staff was molesting children. Should the family just forgive and just not even bother taking that person to, to court or having them? That's a different story as well. Okay, if somebody is molesting a child, the police have to get involved. It has to go through the courts. I'm talking about, you know, in general. There are always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be those things where you say, well, look, um, we have no choice but to bring this. I don't really, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm enjoying this, but I have to. This has got to go through the legal channels, okay? You have to pray about, and I think you, if the situation presented itself, you'd know. You'd know. All right, back in First Peter 2. So let me read verse 21 again, starting with verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, uh, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Now, notice how Peter ties Jesus' humility, uh, his humble acceptance, I should say, of persecution, to his ultimate mission, which was to go to the cross and die for our sins. In other words, the issue in Jesus' life wasn't standing up for his rights, it was being lifted up, on the cross so that we could be saved and once again guys as we follow his example this is our ultimate mission in life as well not to stand up for our rights but as we talked about earlier to die to self to love our enemies to forgive those who have wronged us so that our love in other words god's love flowing through us would hopefully bring this person to jesus and salvation let me stop here for a minute to bring up an important doctrinal point that Peter alludes to in verse 24. Let me read the first part of that verse again. Peter said, Who himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, of course, when Peter says that Jesus died on the tree, he means the cross, right? You say, well, then why did he say the cross? Why did he say the tree? It was because he was drawing on what God said in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, which, guys, also explains why Jesus had to die the way he did. Deuteronomy 21, 23, God said, He who, he who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. He who hangs on a, is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Okay, so now we have to wait a couple thousand years till Paul the Apostle comes on the scene. To explain it to us. 
And in Galatians 3.13, Paul gives us insight. He kind of enlightens us to what was really going on there when he explains in in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, what's Paul talking about? Well, Paul, is, uh, he talks about the curse of the law. Wait a minute, I thought Romans 7.12 said the law was holy and just and good. That's true. The law is God's perfect standard. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was in our inability to keep the law for salvation. Because the law would save if somebody could keep it perfectly all their life. Since nobody can do that, since nobody can live a sinless life, the law cursed them. The law was a cursed thing to me because it wouldn't save me. It would only condemn me because I broke the law all the time, right? The only one that could satisfy the righteous requirements of the law was somebody who could live all his life without ever breaking one of God's commandments. That person was Jesus. So when Jesus hung on the tree, he became a curse for me. In other words, he bore my sin. He paid my penalty and yours. And that allowed God to show us grace, mercy. Grace and mercy have to be built on something. They can't just be extended capriciously without a basis. The only reason God could extend us grace, in other words, that we are saved by grace simply by believing in Jesus Christ without any works that we have to do at all, is because somebody paid the penalty. Somebody died in our place. Somebody satisfied the righteousness of God, 1 John uh, two, Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins, a word that means to satisfy the righteousness of God. Because Jesus paid the price, he died for all of our sins. This allowed God to show us mercy, grace. It allowed God to save us simply by believing in what Jesus did and who he was. But I want to focus on this one thing here. Peter said, who himself bore our sins in his own body. Of course, well, why don't you turn there, Isaiah 53. And I know all throughout this passage that we're studying, Peter had Isaiah 53 in mind. Jesus bore our sins in his own body. Isaiah 53, starting with verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace. In other words, the only way we could have peace with God was if he was beaten. He was chastened. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Guys, here in these verses is the very foundation upon which the gospel rests. We call it penal substitution. Penal substitution means that a substitute, in this case Jesus Christ, was punished in our place. He was our substitute that took our judgment and died on our behalf, and in so doing he atoned for our sins, so that we could be reconciled to God and have peace with God. As I just said, penal substitution is the foundation upon which the gospel is built. Without it, listen, there is no gospel. 
Without it, there is no good news. Is it any, any wonder then that Satan has been attacking this doctrine from the very beginning? Ever since Jesus first went to the cross until the present day, Satan has been attacking this doctrine because he knows this is an essential doctrine for salvation, that you understand what Jesus did, why it was required. Roger Oakland, in his book, Faith Undone, had this to say on the subject, and I'm quoting him. He said, The heart and core of the Christian faith is based upon Jesus Christ shed blood at Calvary as the only acceptable substitutionary atonement for mankind's sins. The gospel message requires this foundation. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Thus, every person alive should receive the penalty of spiritual death because none of us is without sin since we are born with our sin nature intact. Satan hates the gospel message. He understands what the gospel means, and his agenda is to deceive mankind from understanding and believing so they can suffer eternally with him. While Scripture is very clear about the necessity of Christ's death in order for us to be saved, some believe this would make God a bloodthirsty barbarian. Embedded within the structure of the emerging church is just such a belief, end quote. You know, many in the emerging church, many emerging church leaders say they love the cross. They give it lip service. But then they proceed to strip it of all of its power to atone for the sins of mankind. You see, they teach that Jesus, in going to the cross, well, he was an example of servanthood, of sacrifice, that we should follow. However, they say the idea that God would send his son to a violent death for the sins of mankind, well, they say that is not who God is. In fact, author Steve Chalk, and he's not the only one by any means, but Steve Chalk in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, goes as far as to make the claim that such a doctrine, penal substitution, turns God the Father into a cosmic, I'm quoting now Chalk, into a cosmic child abuser. Why? Uh, it's kind of like if your child does something wrong and you go over and kick the dog. Well, what does that do but injure the dog? The dog's not responsible, right? And, and that's kind of how they reason this out. You know, mankind sinned. They fell. Why did God go over and kick his son? Why did God put his son on the cross? Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Guys, to me, this is the thinking of people who don't know the Lord. People who have the Holy Spirit within them, who are saved. They would never reason like this. Their thinking is so skewed, it's so twisted, it's so demonic. To deny the very the very thing that saves us, the blood of Christ, to say the cross was, you know, going to the cross was a great example of servanthood. But it didn't save us. I mean, blood can't save us. That's barbaric, they say. Wow, that's demonic, I respond, to think that way. Episcopal priest Alan Jones, and these are just some of the bigger names in the emerging church movement, Episcopal priest Alan Jones, in his book, Reimagining Christianity, which many emerging church leaders endorse, uh, I'm just reading the uh, intro into this quote, Jones carries with him this idea that God never intended Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to be considered a payment for our sins. This is where he's coming from. I'm quoting him now. He said, the, church, the church's fixation 
on the death of Jesus as the universal saving act must end. And the place of the cross must be reimagined in the Christian faith. Why? Because of the cult of suffering and the vindictive God behind it, he goes on to say the other thread of just criticism addresses the suggestion implicit in the cross that Jesus sacrificed was to appease an angry God. Penal substitution, the cross, was the name of this vile doctrine, end quote. So these people are coming against the gospel. Paul told us in the last days, many would be ashamed of the gospel. And when you go and you couple that with Paul, what Paul said in Romans 1, where we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, right? He's talked, they're ashamed of the gospel in the sense that, uh, that they're ashamed of the fact that we believe, and the Bible clearly teaches, that it was through blood sacrifice that sin was atoned for, and the only way by which we could get to heaven. These folks don't understand. If, if, well, let me just say this. Biblical atonement has always been based on blood sacrifice in both the Old and New Testaments. Both, both Old and New Testaments are replete with examples of this. I'll just give you two, one from each. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, God said. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The soul that sins shall surely what? Die. But under the old covenant, God allowed a substitute, animals, to die in their place to temporarily cover their sins so that the person would not have to die for their own sin. Of course, it all looked forward to Jesus in the new covenant, whereby the, the uh, Lamb of God would sacrifice himself on the cross, and his blood wouldn't just cover sin, but would take it away forever. Uh, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But... Sin brings death. The soul that sins shall surely die. What are these people thinking of when they tell us that Christianity is a bloody religion? We've got we to gotta get past this. We've got to reimagine the Christian faith. This is not good. People have hijacked it and turned it into a bloody barbaric thing. But if you ask them, well, what saves us? I, I don't really know what the answer is they have for that. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood... There is no remission of sin. The church used to sing, probably still does, I'm sure some churches do, some of those great old hymns loaded with theology. One on this subject was by William Cowper. His famous hymn, he writes, give you just a couple of the verses. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Oh my goodness. No emerging church would ever sing that song. It's just too barbaric. You're fixated on with blood. It's barbaric. I think it's beautiful. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. One author said, Oh, would to God the song of the church was still singing the praises of God's redeeming love demonstrated at the cross. For the song of the cross is the song of the redeemed, and listen, it is the gospel, end quote. 1 Peter 2.24, he said, Having died to sins, might live for righteousness. He who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 
that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. When Jesus died, guys, he died so that believers, yes, be saved, but also that we would die now to sin, to its power, that we might live righteously. The Bible has a lot to say, Book of Romans not the least of which, that when Jesus died on the cross and we accepted him, yes, his blood washed us clean of our sins. We are At that moment, we were saved. But we still had our whole life ahead of us. And the power of Jesus' blood in breaking the grip of sin, okay, that sin had us in bondage, sin and death. And when Jesus died on the cross, we received that, uh, that sacrifice by faith. Not only did it wash our sins away, but it broke the power of Satan and the fallen nature in our lives to control us any longer. Uh, Romans 6, the way Paul put it, is that sin was rendered ketargeo, rendered inoperative. The sin nature was rendered inoperative because of what Jesus did in the cross. We think of it in terms of only salvation, and it's true. But sanctification is what is involved as well. I mean, the life that you live after you get saved, the victory, we're more than conquerors. All these things that were promised is all because of what Jesus did in the cross and his blood as we received his sacrifice broke the power of sin, Satan, and death that had a hold on us, allowed us to now live freely. In fact, turn to Romans 6. Let me read this to you from the NLT, okay? And you can dig this out. And I think Romans 6 is one of those chapters that... I think it was uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, great man of God, who uh, was somewhere, and there was a young pastor there. They were maybe traveling, or they were with a group. And um, he saw that the young pastor was reading a newspaper. You know, nothing wrong with that, right? Reading the newspaper. Of course, Barnhouse always had his Bible out. He was always reading his Bible. And at one point, the young pastor said to Barnhouse, he said, Dr. Barnhouse, I would give anything to teach like you. And Barnhouse, the old warrior of the cross, said, well, that, that's good, my son, because it will cost you everything. First thing is, put the paper away. Get your Bible out. In fact, when you throw your Bible on the table, it should automatically open up to Romans 6. And you go from there. All right? But here's what Paul said. Romans 6, starting with verse 3. Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? Now, let me just say this. When you see the word baptism in the New Testament, don't assume it's talking about water baptism. It just means to be immersed. Here in Romans 6, this is a dry baptism. It's the baptism that comes when you receive Christ and the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. You're placed into the body of You're saved. Okay? So he's not talking about water baptism. People read this and they want to get water baptism in there and make it essential for this and that and victory and salvation. No. He said, when you were joined with Christ, you were saved in baptism. Again, dry baptism. <laughs> we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also uh, may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power over our lives. That's the word I was, in the Greek, it's kethargeo, be rendered inoperative. We are no longer the slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 7. 
For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? Well, he's basically saying this. In a mystical way, we don't fully understand. When we accepted Christ, we identified with him in everything he did. He died, we died. He was buried, we were buried. He rose from the dead bodily, we rose from the dead in the sense that we were a new creation now. We were alive in the spirit, right? And as such, as Jesus lived from that moment on in resurrection power, we on this earth live in resurrection power. The power of sin has been broken. The spirit has been poured out. We are now, we are living the resurrected life is what you know, we call it, a life of power and victory because of what Jesus did. It's all based on his victory, right? We're identifying with him. But, but the idea is that Peter is saying, look, Jesus, you know, he bore his, our sins in his own body that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. And that's what Paul's talking about. In other words, before we got saved, we were controlled by the devil, by the, by the sin nature, and so on. And as such, we were the slaves of sin. We didn't fight it. We, just gave, we, we were just the slaves of it. Read Ephesians 2. We just floated down the river like dead fish, you know, uh, with the current of the world. Satan was the god of this world. We just floated along with whatever he wanted us to do because we had no power within us to resist. But once we got saved, we, we were born again. Our spirit came alive. And now we have the power to fight against the current of the world. You know, there are those that say... Um, I struggle so much with sin. Can I even be saved? And it was Spurgeon said, who said, dead men don't struggle. You're struggling with sin. It means there's a new spirit within you. So yes, you keep struggling, keep drawing on God's grace and strength every day to be victorious, but that's a good thing. Because before we got saved, we didn't resist sin. We just floated down river with it, with everybody else, okay? As my pastor used to say, you know, we were just dead fish floating downstream. It takes a live, healthy fish to swim against the current. That's what we are now, all right? Now, listen, guys. Peter ends verse 24 with a statement that many have taken out of context and misapplied. Let me read the whole verse again. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. And this is the thing I want to key in on. By whose stripes you were healed those in the word of faith movement apply peter's words to mean that physical healing was provided for us through jesus death and in particular his scourging that's the stripes peter's talking about how that when they scourged somebody they left the stripes or the the wounds on their back okay it was pretty brutal uh, but but those in the word of faith movement believe that jesus death but in particular his scourging is what caused us to have now the right to be physically healed okay uh, jesus uh, by his stripes we are healed so that means that the healing of every disease and infirmity well that's our that's our birthright as children of god now because jesus you know suffered that we might be healed of sin and along with it the sickness that came as a result of sin 
you know, McGee, J. Vernon McGee, uh, as I was reading his commentary, I think he states it pretty well. You know, he, he says, and I quote, By whose stripes ye were healed? <laughs> healed of what? I noticed that when so-called faith healers use the, the words, By whose stripes ye were, he's quoting the King James, obviously, ye were healed, they refer to Isaiah 53, verse 5, rather than to this verse in 1 Peter, because Peter makes it clear, makes it evident, that the healing is of sins. I certainly agree that the Lord Jesus came to be the great healer, but the, heal, the great healer heals of sins. No human physician can handle that problem. And Peter's use of these words from Isaiah 53, 5 reveals that the prophet Isaiah was not speaking primarily of physical healing, but of that which is more important and more profound, the healing of or from sin, end quote. Years ago, we had a guy in the church, him and his wife, they both had um, come from like a word of faith background. And yet they liked Calvary for some reason, so they came. But they had a lot of this doctrine they brought with them. And I got to talking to him one day because he believed um, that, you know, Jesus' blood paid for our sins on the cross and released us from the effects of sin. And that's true, but here's how he defined that. He said, look, we know that sin brought separation from God, but Jesus' blood on the cross shed for us as we received that, we got saved, now we're reconciled with God. So sin divided us from God, but now through Christ's blood we are reconciled. Well, he said, uh, sin also brought sickness. There was no sickness in the world until Adam and Eve sinned, right? So if sickness is a result of sin, and Jesus on the cross paid for our sins and removed the effects of sins from our life, or sin from our life, that means that we should all be healed now. Because sickness came about through sin, Jesus paid for sin. Sickness should be eradicated. Now, it sounds logical on the face of it, doesn't it? But what I said to him was, well, look, you know, physical death was also the result of sin. And if Jesus' blood undid the effects of sin, well, yeah, sickness was a result of sin. You're saying that should go, go away now. But also physical death was the result of sin. So by your logic, when a person receives Christ, they should never die physically. You know what he said to me? Well, we never will someday. I said, look, you can't apply part of that to physical healing right now and then defer the rest of it to, you know, well, but we won't die someday. So you make it one thing physical uh, and the other thing is kind of spiritual. I said, that's disingenuous, all right? Look, if your doctrine was true and... Through Jesus' blood, all sickness and disease was done away with so that Christians should never get sick, or if they do get sick, they should just pray and it would be gone. That would, same thing would be true for physical death. Now, I've heard some people who are really into this thinking, really into that. I've heard them on the radio say, if a Christian had enough faith, they would never die physically. Instead of just giving up the stupid doctrine that you've developed, you're wrong, admit it, okay? You're holding on to it. You know, you back yourself into a corner. Just say, I, I blew it. I, I went too far. No, they're going to keep going with it. And, and that's just ridiculous, okay? All right, verse 25, we'll close with this. Peter said, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
This is a beautiful picture of Jesus as our shepherd, shepherding over us. That was how God originally designed the human race to be. Helpless, innocent people that God took care of, like a shepherd watches over his sheep. Of course, when man sinned in the garden, the flock was scattered, you might say. Uh, sin separate. We were like sheep that were wandering, lost, okay? Food for the devil. Pray for, you know, the devil to get at us, right? Again, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that imagery is throughout the scriptures. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, But when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. You know, sheep have no natural defense mechanisms. We've talked about this. Sheep are absolutely helpless. Okay, I was at a wedding for somebody in our church, and we left. Because I have to leave early on Saturday night because I gotta get home. I get up early on Sunday morning, so it was a Saturday night wedding. So we're walking out of the all, all Christians at this wedding. So we're walking out out of the door, walking through the parking lot, and I see a guy who's got a license plate, vanity plate, and on it he's a Christian, obviously. He says Lambo. <laughs> now, the nice thought, pal, but there is no such thing as Lambo in the Christian. We're not tough guys. We're not. A, Sheep have no natural defense mechanism. We're completely helpless. We need a shepherd. That's what Jesus became to us, a shepherd. And that's, he says it, that he had compassion on the multitudes because they were like lost sheep with no shepherd. I'll have you turn to this one. We'll close. Luke 15, starting with verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety, over the 99 just persons who need no repentance, those who are saved. So we see this is, you know, this is all about Jesus becoming our shepherd. Now, it's interesting that in life people have all kinds of shepherds, don't they? They have all kinds of shepherds, things that lead their lives, that they look to for help, support. Some have the booze for their shepherd. Others have pills. Um, some have some kind of guru, okay? I mean, uh, you, you know, whatever they are, a movie star or, uh, or a, a spiritual guru or whatever it might be. But we have the true shepherd, the good shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus said, lays down his life for the sheep. Other shepherds don't care about the sheep. When trouble comes, they flee. But I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. This is our shepherd. I feel sorry for people who have a shepherd who can't really help them in time of need or who runs for cover because they don't really care about them. Jesus is the good shepherd. And Peter says, look, he bore our sins. I mean, he loves us so much he died for us. And now he wants to lead us. And if we let 
him lead our lives, he will lead them, Psalm 23, in the right path. Not always the easiest path, by the way, but the right path that we might bring God the most glory and when we get to heaven, have the greatest reward possible. So next week, God willing, we will continue into chapter 3. And uh, as we're, Peter is going to be talking about marriage, and that's always a practical study to engage in. So we'll see what he has to say next week about that. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful. And Lord, if we will read it, apply it, and by your grace, live it, we will always walk in the light and never stumble in darkness. And Lord Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You know what's best for us. You know the right paths that you want to lead our lives in. Give us grace to submit to you, not to fight you, not to, to struggle against you, Lord, but to just submit to your leading, to your will for our lives. No one loves us like you do. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.